All right, um, I'm gonna mention to start uh, just a few job titles, and I want you to listen, I j- just listen. Don't, this is one of those questions I'm gonna ask and I don't want you to answer <laughs> out loud. I just want you to listen to these job titles and, and think about where you've heard them before. Writer, producer, director, unit production supervisor, special video effects manager, Cameraman number one, cameraman number two, cameraman number three. Sounds familiar, right? Everybody knows uh, where these come from. Uh, You see these kinds of job titles at the end of all of the TV shows and movies that you watch. Well, you probably don't because you've already turned it off or walked out of the room by then, right? But you've seen them before. You've seen closing credits before. Closing credits are, of course, a way of yeah, saying thank you, but, but also just acknowledging specifically the roles uh, that were filled by certain people, the, the jobs, the ways that certain people contributed to a, a certain uh, work, if you want to call it that, a certain project that, that there was uh, a lot of people at work on, where uh, combined efforts created what you just saw, right? That's what closing credits are. And this morning, I want to bring you a message called Closing Credits. Uh, This is going to be, as I said, our final message in this sermon series, this message series. We're going to close this out today. And so uh, last week, we ended with uh, chapter 4, verse 6. So we're going to pick right up there at verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, and go through verse 18. That's the end of the letter from Paul to the Colossians. That's going to be our text for today. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. As Paul's letter draws to a close, Paul gives credit where credit is due. Uh, That is what he spends his time doing at the end of his letter. At the end of his letter, it it looks like the closing credits to a film where Paul acknowledges certain people and certain roles, certain things that were done uh, or are being done or will be done, that that he uh, is saying these people have contributed to the Lord's work. He wants the Colossians to know about these people and what they've done. And, as we'll see today, the things that these folks either were instructed to do or had done already, these are all things that we should be doing as those who love the Lord. In Paul's closing credits to the Colossians, we see encouragement commended. We see uh, devoted prayer acknowledged. We see biblical hospitality noted, pointed out. It's brief, but it's there. And we see accountability called for. Again, all these things are things that we as Christians, those who love the Lord, those who want to serve him, should be doing. And the reason being, ultimately these things, when we live these out in our life, when this is the way we behave, when our our attitudes match up with our actions and we start uh, acting like this, being what God wants us to be, we're glorifying Christ, right? As we step up and we become what, what Jesus wants us to become, as we do that, as, as our focused obedience helps to bring other people to Christ and it helps um, the, the Lord's church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to keep the faith in him, we glorify Christ. The Lord is glorified through us doing those things, behaving in ways that cause all those things to happen. So follow along with me as we read in Colossians chapter 4, uh, like I said, starting in verse 7. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, Paul writes... As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. 
For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Verse 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Paul's words definitely have a uh, finale feeling, don't they? I mean, you can tell this is the end. He's, he's finished. He's saying some last uh, things he wants to say, and, and he's wrapping this thing up. You can tell this is the finale. And each of the people that are mentioned here are important for something they've done, something they are doing, or something they will do. These are all people that Paul wants the Colossians to know about. Each of the greetings or the instructions or the reports mentioned here are significant. And the people are significant, and we can read about most of them in other places in the Bible. But rather than focusing, because it would take a long time to look at each one of these people, that's not the only reason, but, but rather than focusing on these people as individuals, looking at their lives and who they were and who they became and so on and so forth, looking at their individual personal lives, we're going to look at what they've done or are instructed to do here. We're going to look at the credits of, of their actions because ultimately that's why they made it into these closing credits from Paul. They made it into these closing credits because of what they did or how Paul was going to uh, use them. And when I say how Paul is going to use them, really ultimately it's how the Lord was going to use them. Paul was giving them instructions inspired by the Lord to do that. That's why they made it into these closing credits, because of what they did. So I want to look at what they did this morning. So looking to learn from these closing credits in that way, we first see the credit of encouragement. The credit of encouragement. In verses 7 through 11 of our text, five different men are listed as encouragers. Now, they're, they're listed in different ways, encouraging in, in different ways at least. Uh, some are going to be sent by Paul to encourage the Colossians. They're going to encourage for Paul, right? They're going to go and be encouragers for him. And then others are listed as encouragers to Paul. They're there in Rome with him, encouraging him uh, as he speaks, uh, so to speak. In verses 7 through 9, Paul mentions here uh, Tychicus and Onesimus as these faithful and beloved brethren 
who are going to be a great encouragement to the Colossians. These two gentlemen were not only delivering the letter that was going to be an encouragement, it was going to be good to hear from Paul, that in itself would be encouraging, but they weren't just delivering the letter, they were also intimately familiar with Paul's situation, right? They had been there, they had spoken directly to Paul, looked him eyeball to eyeball, they knew what was going on. They could answer questions, and you got to know the Colossians would have been eager to find out how Paul was getting along, how Paul was doing. Remember, Paul is in Rome chained to a guard at this time. Uh, one of the reasons probably why he's dictating this letter and, and he only signs that last verse we read, verse 18, he only signs, I'm writing this with my uh, own hand uh, to say, you know, hey, this is my letter. You know, because his right hand probably has a big shackle on it and uh, might be a little hard, but it would have been a, a sweet reminder at the end. No wonder he says, remember my chains, right? Remember my imprisonment. You know, he's writing this probably with a shackle hanging from his, from his arm. But back to where we were. Uh, Onesimus and Tychicus are coming to, to be an encouragement to share how Paul's doing. If the Colossians had any questions that were not answered in the letter, and you know they would have, we could get a letter from Paul today and we would still be, we've got a letter from Paul and we still have questions, right? We still want to know more. We wish there was, you know, we could just, you know, bend his ear a little bit and ask a few questions. What did you mean by that? Or what exactly was going on there? You know, they could get those questions answered. Tychicus and Onesimus would have been encouraging in that way. And when it came to Paul's imprisonment, we know they probably had good things to say. The, the gospel was still being taught and proclaimed through Paul. The people were still learning from him, that he was making progress, he was making a headway, and that he himself was being cared for and encouraged by other brethren who were there with him to do that for him. If the Colossians had any questions about Paul's current condition that weren't addressed in this letter, they were going to find encouragement from Tychicus and Onesimus. That, that's what Paul says in verse 8, the, the whole reason he even sent these guys. It was the very reason he sent them was to inform them and to encourage their hearts. Then we come to that other kind of encouragement in verses 10 and 11 where uh, Paul mentions Aristarchus, Mark, and a brother called Justice, all right? Uh, common uh, name, uh, we saw Jesus, the, the Greek name, uh, the Hebrew name would be Joshua, but this is his, his Roman name here, right? Justice, he was, he was called. It's a very common name um, for sure. Paul says that these men send their greetings to the Colossians. Okay, great, they say hello. But more importantly, he also says that all three of them are fellow workers in the kingdom of God who have proved to be an encouragement to him, to Paul. They were encouragers to Paul. These are the guys who encouraged him while he's in chains. And it says these men have proven, or they've proved to be. So, so at some point in time, maybe regularly, but they have done something. They've proved to be. Not just that they seem like really upbeat guys. No, they've done something to encourage Paul. He's, he's referring uh, in his mind, he's got something specific in mind. These guys have proved to be. Like, like they have gone through whatever gauntlet, uh, whatever test in Paul's mind it takes to, to be considered an encouragement, they've done it. Now, I don't know what it was. Uh, maybe they provided food and supplies to Paul while he's in chains. Uh, maybe they were encouraging with their words. Maybe they said just the right thing at just the right time, and they had a way of keeping him upbeat as he needed to be. Maybe they stood up for Paul when people were talking bad about him or, or razzing him. Maybe they uh, stood up and, and protected his reputation as best as they could. 
It's even possible we read here uh, that these are the only three uh, brothers from the circumcision, he says, uh, which is kind of sad that there were only three, but maybe that's how they were encouraged because they, there were at least three <laughs> Jewish converts to Christianity who were willing to stay by Paul's side, stay by his side, provide the support, the encouragement that he needed. Maybe that was the way they encouraged. We don't know, but they've proved to be an encouragement to Paul, he says. Well, now let's look at us as those who um, are on the path to salvation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, referring specifically to that, uh, previous to that, uh, Paul in Thessalonians has written uh, about how we are on our way uh, moving towards salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. In other words, encourage one another to stick with it to keep your spiritual chins up. Don't give up, don't give in, don't back down. Uh, don't veer off the path. Encourage one another and build up one another to keep the faith. And Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 uh, says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Guys, our weekly gatherings would be bursting at the seams if day after day, week after week, month after month, we were praying and actually thinking, giving, giving, uh, uh, taking a long look and giving some consideration to ways, wise ways, gentle ways, uh, the right ways to encourage one another to try to stimulate one another to, to love and good deeds and, and to uh, being here when the Lord's church assembles. This would mean more people learning more about Christ and, and strengthening their faith, growing and building themselves up in him. That's the result. That's why we want to do this. That's why we want to encourage our brothers and sisters to, to do these things. Love, good deeds, uh, be here in the assembly. That's why we want to do this is because it's going to help us all to keep the faith. And then Hebrews 3, 13 says, but encourage one another day after day. As long as it's still called today. So if we're here on this earth, as long as someone uh, could say, well, you want to do that today? As long as there's a today, encourage somebody on that day. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. So that, and here's the big part, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This shows encouragement as preventative maintenance, right? Sin is deceiving. Sin creeps up on you. You don't realize that you're falling into it sometimes. You don't realize that it's, that it's as dangerous as it is. You don't think that, that you could or would fall to it, that you would be weakened by it. You don't think it's possible. It's deceitful. How many times does the Bible have to say that it deceives us for us to realize it deceives us? Encourage one another so that they don't end up so that we don't end up, none of us end up in a situation like is described or a condition like is described here in Hebrews 3.13. Hardened. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I don't want any of you there and I hope that you'll try to encourage me so that I don't end up there because I don't want to be there. It's deceiving and we can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then you might remember from Colossians chapter 2, uh, Paul's great struggle that he has on behalf of the Colossians and, and others, right? The whole Lycus River Valley that we talked about. What is his struggle all about? Or, or at least in part, 
Remember what he said there when it comes to encouragement, with regard to encouragement? He has a deep desire to be sure that their hearts are encouraged, he said. Encouragement is really important to Paul. And so, church, how can you be an encouragement to those who need it? Uh, well, in a couple ways. And, and it would involve uh, following the example of all five of these guys that are listed here in, in this, uh, this passage. Like Tychicus and Onesimus, maybe you need to bring some good news to a brother or sister. And I'm not talking about the good news. You know, your brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, not that they don't want to hear the gospel again and again. I, I love to tell the story, right? It will be my theme and glory. We love to hear it. But, but I'm talking about good news like what Onesimus and Tychicus were bringing to the Colossians. You know, hey, hey, things are going well. Uh, progress is being made. The gospel is being uh, proclaimed. People are being encouraged and prayed for and helped. This, this crew over here is doing all right. Uh, maybe it sounds something like, you know, hey, brother so-and-so, I know you've been really concerned uh, about this family. I just wanted to let you know I've been meeting with them. I've been encouraging them. And I've been praying for them. Guys, if I had a family that was bur a burden on my mind and I was uh, uh, concerned about them, that would really make me feel good. To know that, that a brother or sister, is, they're on it. I'm there. I'm working, uh, talking, and providing what they need. I'm trying to encourage them. That would be an encouragement to me. That's what Tychicus and Onesimus were doing, providing that kind of information. And then like Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, we also need to... Just be there with others. Be present, right? Paul needed somebody who wasn't a Roman uh, guard, soldier, to, to be there with him. Someone who wasn't chained to him to make sure he didn't bolt. He needed somebody else to be there with him. We need to do that too. Providing support, supplies, uh, building up, providing encouraging words, and, and a, just a shoulder to lean on sometimes or a shoulder to cry on at times. But what really stands out to me from, from verses 7 through 11, and really the whole book. But what really stands out to me here is how much Paul, the Colossians, his companions, and even others, of course, how they had a desire. All these Christians had a desire to know how each other were doing. They really were concerned about each other, really concerned about the church up the road, really concerned about the church uh, down on that side of the valley and on that side of the river. They were really concerned uh, about one another. If we're going to honor and glorify the Lord through encouragement, through this example of encouragement, we're going to have to ask about each other. <laughs> we're going to have to find out how each other are doing. We're going to have to care. We're going to have to ask. And we're also, on the flip side of that, on the other side of that coin, we're going to have to share. <laughs> we're going to have to tell each other how we're doing. Tell each other what struggles we've got, where we need some encouragement, where we need some help. And then having that information and giving that information, we're going to have to actually earnestly seek to be the encouragement that that person needs. Not just have a canned uh, uh, sentence or two or a paragraph that you recite that you think is encouraging, but like we keep saying from Ephesians 4.29, to have the, the right words to share what they need to build them up in the situation they're in. It can't be plastic. It can't be fake. It can't be canned. You've got to hear the situation and provide the encouragement that that brother or sister needs. Their spiritual well-being depends on it. It is heavy. It's important. The second lesson we learn from Paul's closing credits uh, comes from the credit of prayer. Uh, prayer, and that says encouragement again. There it is, prayer. <laughs> I knew it was up there somewhere. 
in verses 12 and 13, we see this particular credit. He says that Epaphras, who is one of your member, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Again, thank you for saying hi, but more importantly, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. See, Epaphras was deeply concerned about them, and so he provided uh, prayers that came from a deeply concerned heart and mind. That was the kind of prayers that, that he gave for his fellow Colossians, and really all the people in this area. We talked about uh, this word earlier. Remember agonizomai? <laughs> That, that fun Greek word, uh, agonizomai. We talked about that uh, earlier, talking about how Paul struggled on their behalf. Remember that? We talked about that word and how um, it means to struggle, to compete for a prize, to contend earnestly, uh, to labor fervently, to contend with an adversary. Well, that's what, uh, when, when it says here, that he is laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, laboring earnestly is translated from agonizomai. We've tried to make uh, that, that definition, that, that picture of that word, we've tried in English to, to call it um, laboring earnestly and, and that do the job. But it's not quite there. It's not quite there. It has this idea of, of enduring whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever agony comes your way, right? Agonizomai. You can hear agony in the word. I've said it before. I'll say it again. You can hear how our word agony comes from this word. Epaphras, this man who as far as we know planted the church at Colossae. He was so deeply concerned about these people for their spiritual well-being that while he was with Paul in Rome, he was struggling. He was striving. He was contending. He was wrestling. He was enduring pain and suffering, agonizing over them in prayer. And that sounds really noble, doesn't it? It, it does. You can, you can nod. It, it does. It sounds noble, but why was he doing that? Why did he need to do that? Why was it valuable for him to do that? Because he knew the dangers that the Gnostic thinkers, those who thought they had special knowledge over and above, outside of Christ, that, you know, hey, if you're a Christian, okay, so what? But you need this information too. He knew what a danger they were to the Colossians. He knew that they were complete in Christ, but there were people there who were trying to tell them they were incomplete and they needed to sign up for their program. He knew what a danger that was. And he knew that they were a real threat to the faith of his converts. Maybe you've prayed in a similar way before, like Epaphras. Maybe you've prayed in a, a way that's similar, uh, maybe for a family member, or maybe for a, a very close friend, perhaps. Maybe there was a time in a specific situation with somebody that you really cared about when you prayed constantly, when you prayed in such a way where, where it felt agonizing to you, where you suffered as you waited for results, as you waited for, for answers that you could see. But, but have you ever prayed like Epaphras? Have you struggled? Have you contended? Have you wrestled in constant prayer because you were deeply concerned for the faith of an entire group of people? That's the example we have. That, that's how we should pray. We should pray like this for Liberty Christian Church. We should pray like this for the Versailles Church of Christ. 
We should pray like this for the Shelby Christian Church. We should pray like this for the Cross Plains Church of Christ. We should pray like this for Kent Christian Church. We should pray like this for the Pleasant Ridge Church of Christ. We should be praying for the faith of these groups of people that they would stay on the right track or where they veered off that they would get on the right track or where they're spiritually lacking and they would be filled. We should be concerned about these people and we should be so concerned that we pray for them in this way. Well, goodness gracious, Jake, if we, if we wanted to pray like that, we'd be praying at all times. Anybody know it off the top of their head? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, yeah. Pray without, without ceasing, right? We're supposed to pray at all times. We're not supposed to stop praying. We're supposed to be in constant communication with the Lord. Remember what we talked about last week? Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Oh my goodness, my clicker is going crazy today. It says, devote yourselves. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And then there's that parallel passage that we looked at in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, that says, with all prayer, Paul's writing this, and very similar language throughout this section to what he's saying over in Colossians. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for just those saints who are real close to you. For the ones you like. For the ones who are just like you. That's not what it says. It says for all the saints. Not just the ones you share a pew with or share a building with or share a Sunday school classroom with uh, or have shared a meal with, but, but all the saints. Epaphras was concerned about churches in three different cities just that we know of and he wasn't in any of those cities at this time. He's in Rome with Paul. So how concerned was he about Christians all over? Very deeply concerned is what the scripture says. He's a beautiful, Epaphras is a beautiful and powerful example of prayer for us. Pray like him. Not only for yourselves, not only for your family. You should pray for yourself. You should pray for your family. But not only for them but also for the faith and the perseverance of your fellow heirs of the grace of God, those who are going to heaven with you. The third lesson that we find in Paul's closing credits is hospitality, the credit of hospitality. If you look at our text again, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Notice that this person here leveraged for Christ what is the greatest physical asset for those who own a home. It is the greatest physical asset for the vast majority of human beings that we own, right? I mean, very few of us um, are driving vehicles that cost more than our home. Very few of us are wearing outfits that are more valuable than our home, right? I don't think any of us are actually doing any of those things, right? This person was leveraging the, their greatest physical asset for Christ, for the cause of Christ, and not just for their own life in Christ, but for the church, right? This person used their house to host the family of God. This church, this congregation, knew that they could and would assemble in this personal residence week after week after week. Would you do this? Think about it. Would you do this? Some of you are probably thinking, Jake, it's not really would I do this because I can't do this. I can't fit 50 to 60 people in my home. Well, let me ask you this. If the church was in a position where it needed a place to meet, 
and was not financially stable, could not go and just rent a place or buy a place. And let's play make-believe. And let's say you have the means, and some of you do. You have the means to upgrade your home, to host the church. Could you put your money where your mouth is in that situation? We're not there, so don't worry. We're not in that position. Praise the Lord. We've got a great building. Um, we don't owe and have not owed on this building. We're financially stable. We're okay. So don't, don't worry that I'm sitting here trying to find a new place for us. Just think honestly here. If you had the means to do it, would you go out and, and would you sell your house and buy a bigger one because it had a large basement that you could fit this congregation in? Something to think about. Would you make that kind of investment? Would you take that kind of leap? I say that because I want to tell you this kind of hospitality isn't radical. That kind of hospitality isn't radical. In fact, Christians have been doing this kind of stuff for the last almost 2,000 years or so. And they've been doing it because they were told to do that. They were told to be hospitable like this. In Acts chapter 2, the first congregation of Christians were, were going to the temple together, but they were also meeting in each other's homes, gathering in each other's homes, uh, spending time in each other's homes. In Romans chapter 16, we learn that Prisca and Aquila had a church that was meeting in their home. In the letter to Philemon, we find that Philemon was also a host to a house church, he and his family. But this isn't a lesson about having house churches. This is a lesson about hospitality. That's why these people were examples. That's the reason they did any of these things they did, like bringing uh, church members or, or whole congregations into their homes, is because they were commanded to be hospitable. That's why they did that. This is a lesson on hospitality. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, as part of Paul's command for Christians to be devoted to one another. So this is in the context of saying, you need to look out for, uh, be devoted to, take responsibility for your brothers and sisters. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. He says, contributing to the needs of the, of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now, practicing does not mean that now and again you remember to, to, to be hospitable. Practicing hospitality means practicing hospitality. I read that somewhere. It's deep, isn't it? I'm just kidding. <laughs> In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, it says, uh, be hospitable to one another. Who's one another? Our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Ooh, now we've got a caveat. Now you're not even supposed to grumble and complain about it. You got to do it with a smile on your face. And you ought to. Here are two New Testament commands from two different apostles of Christ telling us to practice hospitality toward one another. Oh, and then there's Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 that says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Whoa. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Oh boy. Do you remember Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus is talking about those who will and will not inherit the, the kingdom of heaven? Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46. There's that passage there and if, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, you ought to write it down and, and read it because Jesus there in the context again of, of who's going to heaven and who's not, he makes it clear that it is a salvation issue whether or not you feed the hungry 
or give a drink to the thirsty or invite the stranger to come inside or clothe the naked or go and visit the sick or the imprisoned. He says that's a salvation issue. That'll land you in hell or heaven, whether you don't do it or whether you do it. You guys, we should practice, learn to practice hospitality with a smile on our face without grumbling or complaining because God sends secret shoppers. Hello, newsflash. God sends secret shoppers and he's a checking up on you. And he's not just, yes, he's got the knowledge and the ability and the power to just look at you and see what you got inside you and what you're gonna do. But instead, he gives you the opportunity to prove what you are, what you're gonna do. And it's important. But ultimately, we need to learn to be hospitable because of our goal. One of my favorite books is called The Simplest Way to Change the World. And it's all about practicing biblical hospitality as a way of life. And in a section of that book called Putting the Hospital Back in Hospitality, because there is an etymological connection, okay, putting the hospital back in hospitality. There's a quote in that section that says, the end goal of hospitality is care and healing. We do the caring, Jesus does the healing. That's why we do it. When you're thinking, well, it's just physical stuff. I mean, they could get a bowl of soup somewhere else. You know, um, they could get a, a grilled cheese somewhere else. You know, what, what does this physical stuff do? You know, it opens up the door for spiritual. People need their stomachs filled before uh, they'll listen to you. People need uh, their needs met before they can really be in a frame of mind to receive, right? We, we understand how this works, but sometimes we try to, you know, kind of cop ourselves out of it and say, you know, like, well, I mean, what's that really going to do? They need the more important stuff. No, hospitality matters because we provide the caring and Jesus can then do the healing. That's how we should look at hospitality. Opening up our, our homes or using our other resources to care for others, to provide for others so that through our hospitality, Jesus can heal them. Kind of freshens up the idea of biblical hospitality, doesn't it? Last thing, we come to the fourth and final credit and that's the credit of accountability. In verses 16 and 17 of our text, Paul tells the Colossians to make sure that this letter is not only read, okay, we see this to be read to them, but it's also to be read to the church in Laodicea. And also, they are to make sure that they receive and read to the congregation a letter that's coming, it's written by Paul, coming from the church in Laodicea. So Paul is expecting some accountability here, right? Because this letter is to be read to the whole congregation. Right? Everybody's going to hear it. Everybody's going to know that they are to do these things. They are to read this letter. They are to um, pass this letter on, make sure it gets to the Laodiceans, and then get that letter from the Laodiceans and read it out loud to everybody. So who knows the instructions that Paul has given? Everybody. <laughs> Men, women, and children. Everybody heard this. The whole church. So it better happen. But it needs to happen, more importantly, because Paul obviously wants these churches to hear this information. This is obviously important information that the churches at Colossae and, and the church at uh, Laodicea need to hear these things. But then there's a, a, another kind of accountability that's being more directly called for, and that's really what I, I want you to, to hear this morning. It, it's, it's in verse 17, where this accountability is called for, uh, like I said, very directly he says there, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. 
Now, I don't believe that Paul is calling on the entire congregation, the entire church here at Colossae to reprimand Archippus because he's not fulfilling his duties. I, I don't see it. I don't, I don't think that we should infer here that Archippus is slacking off in his ministry to the church. And I got a few reasons why. First of all, if that were the case, I think Paul would have addressed this in more than just a few words at the very end of the letter. Secondly, I can't figure how it would be even remotely biblical to instruct an entire congregation to, to crawl up this guy's back and rebuke him. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's what uh, Paul would have learned from Jesus. I think we can read Matthew chapter 18 and figure that much out. And then thirdly, it doesn't explicitly say anything that would force us to believe that, that Archippus is some sort of misbehaving minister. That's not there. We don't, we don't see that here. What we have here instead is Paul instructing the church at Colossae to provide Archippus with some constructive, some edifying, some encouraging accountability. If the Colossian church was facing all that we believe she was, then Archippus needs a congregation like this behind him who's going to support him and provide this kind of accountability for him, who's going to be invested in him and have his back. This kind of hospitality would be greatly helpful to Archippus. This would spur him along to greater spiritual heights. This could lift him to his God-given potential in Christ. And that would be good for the whole congregation, right? That would be good for the whole body there at Colossae. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So without cutting, without injuring or damaging or wounding one another, we can sharpen each other. In a variety of words and ways, we can say to one another, take heed to the ministry that you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And who benefits when we provide this kind of accountability? Everybody. Everyone. So, so church, let's provide this kind of accountability like Paul was calling for here with, with regard to Archippus. Let's look at the, the junior church teachers who are getting ready to start this next Sunday. Let's, let's look at uh, those who are preparing the lessons, a different crew uh, of people who have been working on that for a month or so now. Let's look at the men who step up and serve here. Let's look at, at the preacher. Let's look at each other, all of us who are involved in some kind of ministry, all of us who have some kind of responsibility to the body of Christ. And yes, let's see what each other ought to be doing, what each other ought to be in Christ. Let's see the potential. Let's see the responsibility that we, that we all have uh, to, to minister in some way. But let's not do this with a negative view of each other. Let's do this with a positive view. Let's not look for faults. Let's not assume that, that somebody could never be this or somebody could never be that or they could never be all that they should be, or they'll make a mistake, or, or it'll, it'll be a rocky road to begin with. Let's not look at it that way. Instead, let's look at what God could do with them. Let's look at, if we supported them, if we prayed for them, if, if we did what they're doing for me, if we treated them that way and looked at them that way, what God could do with them, how God could totally transform. And if you don't believe that God can totally transform someone into, into a, a new person that you wouldn't even recognize because they seem to have it so well put together, because they seem suddenly to, to know the word, they seem suddenly to be spiritually minded, they seem suddenly to, to be praying for important things, but before they were 
nothing like that. If you don't believe God can do that, then let's either talk or let's have you go away for a while while you pray and you study on that for a little bit. One way or another, everyone in this room needs to believe that God can do that to people. That God will do that. That, that people through their faith and trust in God can be totally transformed by his word. So let's look at people as capable in Christ. Let's look that way and then gently, patiently help each other to start walking in that direction. So closing credits. Closing credits here. Sometimes it's satisfying to see the credits roll. Sometimes they seem to come too soon, right? And, and Paul has written a letter here that is relatively short, right? But it's packed with information. It's packed with instruction. It's packed with doctrine. And here in these final 12 verses that we've covered today, he's given us these personal examples, these closing credits. And I want you to realize that these personal examples of encouragement and prayer and hospitality and accountability, these examples come from people who, who knew and we're motivated by the revealed mystery of Christ. All that Paul has talked about in this book, these people knew it and were motivated by it. And that's why there are such beautiful examples. So now, if we know the revealed mystery of Christ, if we are Christians, if we know that he is uh, the fullness of deity in bodily form, if we know that it's only through him that we can be made complete, if we know that he's redeemed us through his death on the cross and that having been buried with him, we've been raised up with him to walk in newness of life, to put on the new self, if we know all that, let's put on that new self Let's make it real in our life by following these examples and being purposeful encouragers, by being devoted uh, prayers, by being hospitable hosts, and by being powerful accountability partners for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray.